one of those areas of sales where they have the ability to scale their efforts and they're just not used to having that ability. They're used to door knocking, cold calling in the old days. They can scale that if they learn how to do social selling on platforms like LinkedIn. Social media is social. Social. So your salespeople should be commenting on that content, should be sharing it, and should be getting on their prospects and your customers' social feeds in creating community and conversation. And it needs to be human. You're talking about a real human being, being a real human being on social and getting your entire team to just give anywhere from five minutes to 50 minutes a day. And the ROI is huge as long as you're creating community. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Marketing Blender Show. I'm Dacia. And I'm Daisy. Now today, we are talking about B2B manufacturing marketing. So examples, tips, tricks, and what you need to know if you are in manufacturing. Marketing for manufacturing is very complex. You're dealing with supply chain issues, potentially a globally competitive landscape. You have specialized vendor requirements. You're probably going to have very long buying cycles. So what are some of the things that you can do to help make your marketing more effective if you are in the B2B marketing space? First of all, you need to understand you're probably dealing with multiple buyer personas and not all of them may be making the final purchase decision. For example, if you manufacture building materials, you need an architect persona who's going to desire the product enough to design it into whatever it is they're creating. You need an engineer or someone else to specify that. You've probably got a construction person or a contractor installing it. And then you've got the property owner and all of the people who use that property who need to be able to understand the benefits of and enjoy the product that you've created. That's a lot of people that you need to engage and persuade with your marketing. So let's talk about some of the ways that you can make your marketing more effective if you're a manufacturer. I I love this because I think immediately what comes top of mind for me is you have to be omni-channel. Now, obviously, maybe I'm sliding into a little bit of marketing jargon, so back up. It just means multiple places, be a part of the conversation on multiple platforms in multiple stages so that you are adding voice and thoughtfulness to all of these different influencers or decision makers and making sure that you're a part of the ecosystem that when they need you, you're top of mind. And I would say for most of the manufacturers that we work with, omni-channel is a little bit aspirational, Mm -hmm. if we can just get them to multi-channel where you're in multiple (laughs) places, even if it's not one cohesive, seamless transition from one to the other, just be in more than one place. And over the past few years, finally, B2B manufacturers are starting to realize they need to be online. They need to be doing digital marketing, but it needs to be more than one type of digital marketing. So for example, Yes, you need to be on LinkedIn. You need to be probably running ads on LinkedIn. If there's any Google search intent that you can run ads on, that's absolutely a place to be, as well as display marketing, so retargeting the people you've already touched. I also usually encourage B2B manufacturers to have an engagement with at least one major publication where they can put out some thought leadership. It could be a an organization, a professional organization. It could be an expo that happens on a regular basis. But obviously, don't forget email. That's the one that so many manufacturers miss. It's like, well, we're, we're online and we're putting stuff out there, 
but they're not re-engaging people routinely through the email channel. What are yeah. some of the other channels that you like for manufacturers? You know, I think you covered some of the really big ones, but speaking is a huge one that we like to activate because if we've got a dynamic or even just very intelligent person that's comfortable in front of audiences in the company that can bring unique insights, holy game changer. And typically for that person, it's really, really fun and satisfying to finally go, wow, I'm actually saying the things that I've been fighting for and advocating for this entire time. And then repurpose, right? It turns into really fantastic content across those different places that you just mentioned. So that's definitely one of the other ones. But you know, one other thing that I would add to this is do it on purpose. It's not about just throwing stuff out there. Oh, we've got to be all the different places. No, it's going back to who are the exact humans you're trying to reach and then why are you communicating to them in this specific place? So for instance, is this a place of awareness where they're doing research and they're trying to inform their understanding of their problem or the market? Or are they starting to be aware that they are going to make a business decision, a buying purchase? And so now they're trust building and they're making sure that they're vetting different options or are they the final stages of a decision and you're just trying to get them to not ghost you or to really trust you and to make a great decision about how they decide to launch a relationship with you long-term. So being really intentional and strategic about these multiple places that you're communicating not only is healthier for your marketing, but it is massive, massive value for the people that you're trying to guide towards a great business decision. I'd like to add a couple of things. The first one is about speaking. So a lot of manufacturers like to think of it, their product itself as thought leadership, and that leads to all of their public speaking being about selling their product. That's actually not the position you want to have as a thought leader who is a manufacturer. You need to be talking about your point of view. There's something about how you created, designed, built, tested your products that's different than the rest of your market is doing. There's a reason behind that. There are lessons that your target audience can learn from that. So when you're thinking about presentation and speaking, you need to be thinking about what is that larger perspective? What is that thing that's unique about your point of view that you can bring to your target market that they can benefit from in terms of education? The other thing I'd like to talk about is seeding ground to the competition. And I see this a lot. Sometimes manufacturers dig their heels in like, we don't do X, Y, Z because we shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. Good case in point, bidding on their own brand name. Yes. So if you're running Google ads and you're a manufacturer and your competitors are bidding on your brand name so they can show up with their ads above your organic search results, that's not okay. You shouldn't be okay with that. You shouldn't say, well, we just rely on organic search results and we don't care about the rest of it. You better get in there and own your brand name. And guess what? It's going to be a lot cheaper for you to get top placement for your ads for your own brand name than your competitors. Yeah. We see, we have seen so many times where a manufacturer was one of the founding members of their product, right? You know, like they were the initiator or they really are the premier provider. And what we hear is, oh, everybody knows our name. Okay. Maybe now. 
but do the buyers of tomorrow know your name? Are they going to believe or care that you were first to market? Probably not. And so you're right. I mean, you have to steward what you worked so hard for, that brand recognition, that brand name. And you have to maintain the fact that it represents something specific that you are being intentional around. And so I think that's such a great point. And we see people pay attention to their competitors in the wrong places, right? right. Like just because a competitor is on a certain platform doesn't mean like, oh, you need to go and run and do that. No, that's a decision based on who are you trying to communicate and will that work for them? But you're right. Just saying I shouldn't have to do that or no, that's a waste <laughs> of our time and money. Careful with that. I mean, I think that's a really, really great point. I think one of the other things I wanted to bring up, you know, especially since you were talking about thought leadership and speaking is where it is in the funnel, right? So everybody wants thought leadership. Who doesn't, right? Of course you want to be a or the thought leader in your industry, but you have to understand that this is a slow burn type of opportunity where you have to be so consistent around that. And you've just got to be clear, is this type of thought leadership going to drive quick leads? Sometimes speaking can, but for instance, publishing articles or doing more long-term SEO, what's really educating the market or doing a podcast or appearing on other people's podcasts, that is amazing thought leadership content. It builds extremely high value and trust for you, but does it generate leads? You simply have to be clear about what is it going to do and not accidentally assign the wrong metric because you want to have a balanced approach of things that will fill your pipeline tomorrow, thought leadership, along with other things that are going to fill your pipeline today, lead generation and sales enablement. So creating that ecosystem and really just understanding what's the role of this thing we're doing. I agree. And as you're thinking about what thought leadership resources are worthwhile to develop, think about where are you leading people? Yes. Because those resources that help your buyers make progress are the ones that are going to have a more direct and a more rapid impact on your ability to fill your funnel. Yes, and thank you so much for using that word progress. It's one of my favorites because one of the things I always wanna do, especially for manufacturers, is we hear we love educational content or we need to get more educational content out there. We almost always agree with this, right? Like if you're trying to reframe or get people to think differently about their buying decision, absolutely critical. However, what's the point of it and how are you distributing it? I think it's so important. And so it's about progress for your buyer, not education. And if you're thinking, will this educational material progress them towards their best decision? Game changer and game changing differentiation strategy because it's in action, not just in word. By this point, you guys have figured out that both Daisy and I are chief marketing officers, but what you might not realize is there's a whole team of us at the Marketing Blender, and we also have outsourced marketing teams. So if you're curious about how we break revenue plateaus, how we untangle sticky messaging, and how we make sure to drive exciting return on investment and profitable growth, check us out at themarketingblender.com. But it's not just for mid-market companies. We've also figured out how to scale it down for small businesses too. The Marketing Blender Lab is our program just for small businesses looking to hit their first million in revenue. You still get to work with a real chief marketing officer, and we use the same structures and systems that work to grow big businesses to help you meet and exceed your goals.
So again, if you're interested, check out themarketingblender.com. See you there. The next thing I'd really like to talk about because so many manufacturing companies have not figured this piece out yet is social selling. Oh, yes. You don't just have to talk to or at people. You can engage with them. You can. And it's one of those areas of sales where they have the ability to scale their efforts and they're just not used to having that ability. They're used to door knocking and cold calling in the old days. And even now, you know, cold email outreach, going to networking events and hoping there's somebody there that's a, a prospect for them. And they don't realize that all the amazing skills that they have to reach out and connect with and relate to people and be good listeners and ask great questions, they can scale that if they learn how to do social selling on platforms like LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so often it's like, oh, marketing does our social media. Social media is social. Social. So your salespeople should be commenting on that content, should be sharing it, and should be getting on their prospects and your customers' social feeds in creating community and conversation. And it needs to be human. Like, oh, down with the mass automated LinkedIn blasts that are no longer working, like the ones that are so salesy, that is not what you're talking about. No, not at you're all. talking about a real human being, being a real human being on social, and getting your entire team to just give anywhere from five minutes to 50 minutes a day. And the ROI is huge as long as you're creating community. It has to be consistent, but it's definitely a cumulative effort to build and leverage your tribe online. And one of the things I like to ask salespeople is when's the last time you shared content that one of your customers or one of your prospects posted? When's the last time you spotlighted them? When's the last time you tagged them and gave them something helpful via social media? How apparent are you making it that you're there to connect, that you're there to be a social human being with them and help them, again, focus on the things that they want to accomplish and the things they want to be recognized for? And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. And there are actually a very few automation tools that help with this piece, but I don't believe in using automation to send direct messages to sell people. I believe in using that as a tool to remind people why they matter. Yes, and just helping to stay connected. Because really what I think this is about is it's about that servant leadership paradigm. It's about being in it with people. So people love to buy, but they hate to be sold right? So being a guide to their buying decisions, being a partner. And like you said, sometimes it's a shout out. Sometimes it's a share. Sometimes it's a comment, but be in it with people. And these are the right activities nowadays. And it's amazing what this kind of engaged content does for your brand authority, where people see it and you stay top of mind and they're like, wow, they really have conversations going on. People are listening to them. I mean, it's just absolutely exciting when this is added. One of the things also that comes top of mind for when we're talking about activities like social selling is the fact that consistency wins in manufacturing marketing. But a lot of times these are very, very long sales cycles. We frequently work with manufacturers where their sales cycle on their best cases are six months. So oftentimes we see one, two, even three 
year-long sales cycles. Sometimes you have changes in people where someone has left the company and you feel like you have to start all over again with that prospect. And so how do you make sure that your marketing ecosystem can go the distance in something so long and slow where you have to be incredibly proactive and really thinking long-term about guiding people through big, big decisions. So the social selling is a great example of staying top of mind through this really long journey. It is. And one of the other things that I see manufacturers struggle with when it comes to long sales cycles is attribution. Mm. And people think the right question is, well, how is this one little marketing activity or piece of content linked up to an eventual sale? Yeah. Now, there are actually lots and lots of ways to do tracking and attribution. Most manufacturing companies don't have anywhere near the MarTech sophistication. They right. don't have the software in place. They right. don't actually understand how to processize that and act, create even frameworks for tracking. But at the very least, understanding that this is the impact that social media has. This is the impact that organic SEO has. This is the impact that pay-per-click has. Understanding what you're supposed to be seeing, even if you can only infer the results based on you know year over year with those long sales cycles, if we consistently improve our SEO game. Are we seeing more impressions? Are we seeing more traffic? Are we seeing more conversions on the website? And we've actually worked with people that are in the manufacturing sector where a year of focused effort on improving SEO has turned their website into the primary lead source. Yes. That's not something you can argue with. <laughs> we know what the right things to do are, even if you don't have complete visibility across your entire sales pipeline. That is a good thing to aspire to, but don't wait to do marketing just because you're like, well, I, we're doing social media and we're, we're not sure if we got a client out of that. That's right. We know what the right things to do are. Yeah. How many times have we literally heard clients say, well, show me the exact sale that that one social media post drove. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So especially since we're talking about manufacturing, it's like it's the equivalent of when you think about your manufacturing line, you know it is possible that if you optimize to its maximum capacity and capability one piece of equipment, you could actually wreck your entire efficiency of your line because now you're creating bottlenecks and backups and then all the manpower that you have to use in order to manage the overproduction of one part of your line. It's about the entire system and marketing is the same way. There are metrics and KPIs that need to be optimized as a system because marketing is about filling your pipeline and hitting your outcome of your revenue numbers, right? And so then you look at each aspect of the system. Is it optimized? Is it playing the role that it needs to today and tomorrow. And so build that entire holistic approach, not one thing at a time in attribution that actually kills ROI. So really well said. I think that's just so, so important. And we just see a misunderstanding of that. I think another area of misunderstanding is around the competition. God. The competition. The. <laughs> yes. Which one? What's the real competition? Right. There's an emotional attachment to the idea of who our competitors are, you know, and maybe it's somebody who poached a, a top salesperson from you 10 years ago. And that's why you're like, those are our comp competitors. I've worked with manufacturing companies that actually have no idea who their 
competitors are in the digital landscape. They'll tell me about who they hear about from their, their customers as being in their competitive landscape. But if we do a digital audit, I can show them five companies that are bidding on the exact keywords that they're trying to rank for or bid on that they've never heard of before. Yeah. We worked with a couple clients in one particular infrastructure industry, and it was so frustrating because the real competition in this example wasn't just online client or competition that they didn't know about. It was alternative materials and alternative products. And so infrastructure was booming. They were making a lot of money. And so it felt good to beat or win against their direct competitors, but market share was being stolen by alternative products and they were not paying attention. And it was so frustrating because it's like, who's the real enemy? Who's the real threat? Is it the one-to-one -one that you've been doing because you're comfortable? Or is it something that really could disrupt your entire future? So that's another one um, that's just incredibly important about having a full-blown landscape of what are all of the options that your buyers could consider, not just you versus someone else. Right, you can end up squabbling over who's got the biggest piece of an ever-shrinking pie. Yes, yes. The other one, the number one place that people lose to, no decision. No decision. Oh my gosh. And when we're talking about these long sales cycles for manufacturers, it is not good for your prospect to not make a decision either. If they need to change, whether it's providers or products or any of the different conversations that you're having, it's not acceptable for them to have wasted all of that time, all of that attention, just to keep doing the same thing because they had a problem when they first started talking to you or they wanted change and then somewhere in the friction or the details of that slow conversation, they forgot why it was important. And so they will still have that problem and they are going to need to think about that. But you know, it's the client, it's the manufacturer's responsibility to hold that space for why they need to go the distance and make the change. I think one of the challenges in B2B manufacturing from a salesperson's perspective is that they, they see the buyer as the block to progress. They're like, why won't this person make a decision? So yes, those no decisions are very common, but it's actually not the buyer that's the problem. It's the no decision that's the problem. That's the competition. That's what you need to be. That's where you need to be better than the apathy, better than the no decision, better than the delays, because you're actually on the buyer's side. You want to help them make a decision because you know that they're never gonna get the time back that they wasted on, I don't know what to do, I'm not sure what comes next, I'm confused about this or that or the other thing. So when you're on the same side of the table, looking at that no decision, that inability to move forward as the competitor for your brand, you're gonna be able to make better decisions about how to help your buyers make the next right move without it being pushing them to do something that they don't want to do, but actually working with them to make a decision they're going to be happy with. Absolutely. The final one I want to bring up around competition is commoditization, right? So sometimes that's just where the industry is, like intentionally or because that's how the market has gone. And so sometimes you're battling commoditization, right? But sometimes that's just your environment. And so then it's critical to think, well, what are they really buying? And we see this confusion where it's us versus them. Oh, well, we get better, we give better customer service, or we do this, or we do that, or we have better price concessions, or better spiffs, or whatever, whatever the language is. And 
sometimes the key is going, well, what are they really buying? Yes, they have to buy your product. It's a commodity. They need it in order to accomplish their project or run their business or sell what they need to. However, so then inside of that, why you, I think people really lose that um, clarity on what's behind that. Like they just automatically assume it's a one for one. You can find some really interesting ways to message and compete in a commoditized environment. I agree with that. I think that's actually where B2B manufacturing companies are gonna find their blue ocean. Mm, Well said. Because if it's becoming more and more commoditized, your ocean is getting more and more red. Now's the time to think about what's that value add that no one else has thought of. Yeah, and for anybody that hasn't pulled out Blue Ocean Strategy, that wonderful oldie but goodie in a while, go straight to that buyer map and look for the friction and see where you can add value and think differently. Oh, well said. Okay, so I'm gonna do one nuanced one moving on is um, the business model because a lot of our clients in manufacturing are, have an element of business to business to consumer, or they have one product that's consumer. But then we still see the same messaging across their entire business model. Instead of breaking down, there's very specific messaging for buyers of organizations, so corporate buyers versus demand generation in the market in order to get people to purchase your product or to help your real customer, your distributor, to sell through their product and then how do that how does that work together right and so making sure that your total business strategy is actually communicated in the right places in the right way for maximum impact for all of the stakeholders. And we see a lot of really huge, low-lying, low-cost optimization opportunities found in this blurriness of who are real buyers, when, where, and why are we doing what we're doing. I think one of the best examples of B2B2C is pharmaceutical sales in the U.S. And in in many other countries, they're not allowed to do this. But in the U.S., pharmaceutical companies, they know that they can go target their physicians' offices and hospitals with one-on-one with pharma reps. But where are they spending most of their money? TV. Yeah. They're getting the consumer to go to their doctor and say, why don't you have me on XYZ medication? Mm -hmm. So in the manufacturing world, if you have a B2B2C play, Considering, you know, what, how am I allocating my resources? How much of that pressure to make a change should be coming from the end user yeah. and not from the corporate buyer? So you have those two working together. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we see this a lot also with larger consumer products. Like say, for instance, we've a company, you know, we've got clients that sell through Walmart or Costco or any other big box or, you know, retail chain, C stores, it doesn't matter. Um, and they've got a clear market strategy, but then they don't leverage that with a clear buyer strategy. Like, yes, they're thinking about placement and point of sale and all of this other stuff, but that buyer has more and deeper reasons for why they're talking to you and how they really perceive what they're purchasing and what their role is. And we very rarely see a highly organized, highly strategy around how do you talk to those buyers? How do you position on the B2B side correctly? They just go, we do all the social media, we've seen this sell through, and I I think there's um, some depth that can be harvested frequently there. 
once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I've, I've seen that occasionally too, where they're like, well, we're doing all the demand gen, but <laughs> yeah, it's up to you to decide you like us. Yeah. I think that actually brings us to our final point, which is around distributor, reseller, channel partner marketing, because this is so important in so many manufacturing organizations, and there is very little strategy that we see around this. Oh gosh, I know. So frequently we see that they're, you know, the company, the manufacturer goes, oh, we'll just pick up another distributor. And they think because there was a distribution contract signed, oof, that's just gonna amplify, multiply, scale their sales. That don't always happen. <laughs> There's a Pareto's principle frequently with distributors that 20% of your distributors will sell 80% of your revenue. But oftentimes people are abdicating responsibility for the sell-through that happens through their distributors. They are. We see a lot of manufacturers. It's actually quite common to see manufacturers who believe that their business model is other people do all the sales for us. We just make the thing. We make the really great thing and we work with organizations that have really good sales teams. So therefore, we don't need to worry about anything other than making the thing and getting more distributors to sign contracts with us and everything else will be taken care of. That is not how it works. If you're delegating your, all your sales activity to resellers and distributors and channel partners, you better be giving them the tools to help sell that. You better be making it important to them that they sell your stuff and your model more than they spend their time and focus on selling anything else. They need to be committed to your sales process. The other thing I would say is we have another great B2C example here. Multi-level marketing companies outsource all of their sales efforts. Their whole thing is we're gonna just hire or create business owners of as many people as possible and that is our distributed sales force. And guess what? Most of those people never make any significant amount of money. And they're just playing the numbers game as an MLM saying, if we get enough people, some of them are gonna be superstars. Yeah. And it's a lot less than 20%. It's, it's a way less. Far, far less. Yes. But one thing that those MLM companies do really well, they provide all the marketing materials. They know exactly how to get their people the tools that they need. So if they happen to have the right network or the, you know, the stars align or whatever works for them to actually make their MLM business a success, they have all the systems in place. They have all the ability to sell through. They've got support in terms of, hey, here's ideas for what you can do on social media. They're being given that support. Yeah. If manufacturers would put that kind of effort into supporting their resellers and distributors, they would see a very, very different outcome. Agreed. I mean, there's culture there. There's celebrations. There's appropriate rewards that are not just the financial compensation. I mean, there's this deep engagement with their resellers. And I think you're right. There have been frequent times where the real buyer persona that we documented wasn't the end user or the end buyer. It was the sales rep of their most important distribution partners. Because the thing is, is salespeople will sell what's the easiest thing for them to sell. They have a number to hit. No matter how amazing your product is, if you have not made it easy, and if you have not trained them and given them the tools to be able to trigger attention, trigger interest, trigger action and decision to create progress for their buyers, you're not gonna get them. So I love that because there's so many amazing ways where you can stay top of mind with distributor sales reps and even their marketing teams. That's another one where frequently there's very little marketer to market, marketer communication between that. And wow, it's magic because those marketers do 
want to work together and you can elevate your brand awareness and yourself through simply by being intentional and being aware of what's the real competition for the sales rep and it's what's the priority for me? What do I need to sell and what's going to make me most successful right now? There are three things that we typically build for distributors when we're working with manufacturing companies that need to sell through. The first thing is buyer personas, documented buyer personas. So helping that salesperson have a documented understanding of who they're selling to. I don't care if they've been doing it for 20 years, having the documentation, especially if you want to have more than one distributor selling for you, they need to all be working off of the same playbook. Number two is messaging choreography. So what do you say when? Yeah. And the final thing that I like to give people is a, a sales cheat sheet. It's literally the thing that they can refresh their mind with before every conversation because they're, they may be selling 20 different products from 20 different companies. You want yours to be the easiest to sell. Yeah, absolutely. If you can create this idea of like a sales in a box or a selling kit that is super easy to engage with for the sales rep, Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes follow-up. I mean, it makes their value proposition so much clearer and stronger on your behalf. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I love this one. I could keep going on and on because we have so many weird examples. I am going to chase one quick squirrel before we wrap it up though, is that depending on the size of the people that you're selling to, the organizations that you're selling to for the manufacturers. So for instance, um, we have some manufacturers that sell to enterprise Sometimes what they need are more nuanced elements. And so we have, to great effect, had a couple manufacturers that, you know, are minority owned or they align with those big um, corporate initiatives where they have to have certain types of partners or there's some cultural, societal governance component to that buying you know, to that buying decision and leveraging all of what you have inside of your messaging and sometimes looking for those relationship doors or those other values alignments that you can do. I think there's just so much nuance. But again, it goes straight back to everything that we've talked about being really, really thoughtful and really, really aware of what's really behind the decision and the humans that you're talking to and what they actually care about. And one final item on that, when we work with manufacturers that are selling internationally or selling into defense organizations or selling into you know, very tightly regulated areas or global markets, not everybody cares about the same thing. Yes. So if we have a U.S. manufacturer in the U.S., we talk about that all the time, made in the U.S.A., made in the U.S.A. If we're selling overseas, we don't talk about that <laughs> because not every country looks at the U.S. and says that is a highly stable place that we want to do business with, ironically. So there may be changes in messaging just based on where your buyers are in the world. That's right. The differentiation changes so much because what somebody in Europe cares about as a buyer is almost always going to be extremely different than when someone in North America, let alone the U.S., cares about. So... You guys, thanks so much for jumping into this conversation. Any questions you have, post them in the comments, hit us up on our socials, or check us out at themarketingblender.com. If you liked what you saw, give us a thumbs up. Definitely hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next week on Word and Upward. Word.